Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to TGMR, the Galleries at Moore Radio, a public art talk radio station broadcasting from the Moore College of Art and Design. Listen live, search the archive of past broadcasts, or find out how you can get on the air at thegalleriesatmoore.org. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Imani Roach, and this is another installment of Art Blog Radio. Today, we're so, so excited to have Yolanda Wisher with us on the program. Hi. Uh, Yolanda, as I'm sure many of you know, um, is a renowned poet, a educator, musician. Um, the list goes on and on. She's also currently um, the curator of spoken word at Temple Contemporary, which we're going to be talking about. Um, but before we get into any of that, I was reading that you're also part of the first group of artists who has a studio space over at Cherry Street Pier, right? Yeah. Um, which is great. Congratulations Thanks. on that. Um, but, it, you know, it called to mind a question, which I guess is, like, what does a poet do with studio space? What is your, you know, what does your studio look like and how are you um, settling in? Yeah, I actually have a hashtag poet with a studio because I wondered too when I had the opportunity to have a studio there what I was going to do with it. And it's totally an experiment. Um, you know, I have it until January 2020. And I think of it as just, you know, a wild ride of what a poet can do with an extra space like that. I think of it as kind of a private room for myself. It's only, you know, it's, it's space that um, I do use usually in my home. Like I have a study in my home and it's my little office. But in the studio at the pier, it's a private room that I often sometimes share with the public. And I think sometimes when you're invited into somebody's private space where you know that's where, you know, they're cultivating their ideas or they're most comfortable or there's a sense of safety and security, you know, when you open up that space to other people, I think it can be really powerful, um, a powerful look into the process of what it means to be a writer. Um, mm. So much of the work as writers that we do is never seen by the public. Mm. Um, so it's interesting to think about what parts of that you can share. So what my studio looks like is, you know, there's a typewriter, of course, because I love typewriters. And uh, for years as an English teacher, I used to keep an old busted typewriter in my classroom and kids would come in and just kind of play around on it. Oh, wow. And um, we have a great typewriter uh, store called Philly Typewriter um, on Pashunk Avenue, and they have a great host of typewriter program, the Philly Public Typewriter Program. And so I host a public typewriter in the studio. Um, I painted the floors red because um, I wanted my shipping container to look like a different, have a different vibe than all the other containers huh. um, that the artists have. Um, and I also have a kitchen table in there, an old um, Formica kitchen table, um, mostly because I really love this Joy Harjo poem um, called Perhaps the World Ends Here um, that starts with, you know, the world begins and ends at a kitchen table or something like that. Mm. Um, and for me, a lot of my early writing as a kid started at a kitchen table, you know, in my mom's house. Um, that was where some of the first poems I ever wrote um, started or some of the songs I wrote. And I think, you know, when you invite people to that kind of space, to sit around the kitchen table, you know, the dynamics of, you know, power dynamics shift and people feel a little bit more included than they do at some of the other tables that, you know, at, at which people are masterminding the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so many different directions that I want to go um, from that answer alone. I think, 
you know, the, the most powerful image for me is sort of you being a kid at the kitchen table writing your first poems. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, at what point did you realize that poetry was the thing for you? And then also, you know, who was the first person to affirm that? Who was the first person to say, you know, this is good, follow this? Um, or, you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. <sighs> when did I know? Probably, you know, for me, writing came kind of at the edge of reading. You know, my mm-hmm. mother had this amazing library. Um, she didn't finish college, but she had this amazing library. She was a really voracious reader, like all of the women in my family who didn't necessarily have academic careers, but loved to read. Um, that's just kind of a thing in my family. And, you know, my mom would read everything from romance novels to sci-fi to medical thrillers. Um, so the bookshelves were always full with possibilities. I was always drawn to the work of black women writers. And the more that I read their work, the more I became interested in their biographies. Hmm. The more I be- read their biographies, they became blueprints for a life that I could possibly live that was freer, wilder, much more exciting than my little life as a black girl in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, that was when I, those reading those works and learning about those women's lives um, and the the adventures that their lives had entailed, you know, like reading about Sonia Sanchez going to China um, or, you know, reading about Angela Davis and Asada Shakur, you know, crossing state lines and national lines to get to safety. It gave me a really different vision of what my future could be. Um, and, you know, I fell in love with the romance of being a writer, mm-hmm. you know, um, even before I could fully embrace it as like my profession, I was always kind of drawn to, you know, the pictures of people with their typewriters, you know, James Baldwin in the Alps smoking a cigarette, with his <laughs> giant, giant glasses and a cigarette, you know, and a big typewriter. Very glamorous. Yeah, I wanted to have a little piece of that. Um, my mother was the main force um, in my writing career as a kid. Uh, she was she was like she fought for me you know there were parts of my elementary school class years of where you know she really thought I should be in this gifted resource program and she they gave me some IQ tests and I was like points away from whatever the standard was to be in this program and my mother insisted she's like I don't care what your test says and I don't care what the numbers are saying my child is gifted she needs to have access to these classes where she gets to meet writers and write poems and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, and she just made herself, um, <laughs> you know, just somebody that would never go away, yeah. you know, in terms of fighting for all of us, all of, you know, my sisters included. She became, you know, the advocate for us and made a lot of sacrifices for me to have opportunities to become a writer and really see myself like that, like workshops and, and classes that I took. She was my champion and still is. That's such a, I feel like that's a story that comes up again and again, particularly with um, just other successful black people I know mm-hmm. that, like, my mom also had to fight yep. my teachers yep. for a lot of, particularly yeah. in elementary school. Like, yeah. I think the older you get, yeah. um, the, the easier it gets. But yeah. early on, so often, they really Yeah, do. she wanted them to see me the way she saw me. Yeah. And I think that is just something you just have to do as a, a, chi- a parent of a black child in America. 
there are going to be ways that the world just doesn't see your child. Yeah. And a lot of those ways are as an artist or as a creative person, as somebody who has a sensitive soul. Yeah. You know, those are the things you you may even want to try to, you know, beat or teach out of your kids in order to try to prepare them for the world. And for me, it was always just like amazing how courageous it was for my mother to nurture that in yeah. all of us, yeah. um, despite what she knew the hardships would be or despite the fact that she knew that that path might not make us any money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> might not support our, our lives in the way that she would hope. Right. So is that partially at least what drew you to becoming an English teacher, that desire to sort of, I don't know, make space for other kids to sort of be seen as gifted or... Um, Part of it. I mean, I, I kind of, it was my first job out of grad school. It was the only place I feel, I, it was the only job I could really get with a master's in poetry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well. Yeah. Right. So I was like, how can I use this degree that, you know, in some spaces, like I was thinking I'd be into public relations or affairs or something like that. And, you know, I remember going to job fairs and they would look at my master's in poetry and my little resume of readings and publications. And they were like, what are you thinking about? <laughs> They didn't see necessarily how I could be valuable in those spaces. But, mm. um, you know, folks definitely saw how I could use my love of literature to inspire other young people. And that was really my my angle as a poetry teacher is I just really wanted young people to fall in love with reading and with language. And it didn't take long before I became kind of the poetry lady mm. um, as an English teacher. And I had encountered a lot of poetry ladies already. And I had a, <laughs> a poetry later, lady in my high school career um, who had tea in her classroom and little sugar cubes. And we would just kind of hang out uh. there eighth period and talk about our poems. I wanted to be that as yeah. an English teacher. That was the best part of being an English teacher for me. Um, and then, you know, within that, I found young people who were as passionate about poetry as I was. Yeah. And we started to form community within that community. Um, and it happened that a lot of those kids were black and brown kids who needed a voice within that very white, you know, uh, very predominantly white environment of this, this private school that I was teaching in. Um, and also kids from the neighborhood of Germantown where I was based and still am, who needed a voice within this community. Yeah. Young people in general just needed a voice in all of these spaces that they were in and operating in. And poetry became a way for them to have that voice. And that was when I just like kind of awoke to its power. Um, and I really started to believe that this thing that I went to school for, that I, that I got a degree in, I could actually use it for, for good. I could use it to make social change. And that wasn't something I had been taught. It was something I had to discover um, through trying to figure out solutions to problems that I encountered as a teacher you know, trying to really best serve the young people I was working with. Yeah. I mean, talking about um, sort of helping people, f particularly black and brown people, find a voice within sort of the pr private elite, predominantly white institutions. Um, you're now working as a curator of spoken <laughs> word um, within Philadelphia Contemporary and, you know, um, which is, you know, a fantastic organization. But if we want to talk about, you know, there are very few institutions that are sort of more elite, more white than the sort of contemporary art world right. at large, yeah. right? Um, so what does it mean to you to be, I mean, I've never even heard of such a thing as a curator of spoken word, particularly within an art, a visual arts institution and performing arts institution. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering, 
A, how that idea even came to be, um, but then also how you feel about um, sort of being the person who's, who is creating the space within this larger institution. Mm. Well, I met Harry Philbrick, who is the founder of Philadelphia Contemporary, um, kind of when I was in this in-between space of, I was a, a director of art education at Philadelphia Mural Arts right. for five years after being an English teacher. And then I transitioned into being kind of a full-time artist and poet and teaching artist. And he had left PAFA, um, where he had been the director, and he was starting to think about this idea for this museum, that he, this contemporary art museum. And he's, he's a kid of poets. You know, mm. His dad was a poet, and he oh. had a really lo a strong love for poetry, um, which I really thought was great. You know, I really, like, yeah. we had that kind of shared interest and appreciation. And he just asked me to start to collaborate with him and some of the, the early Philadelphia contemporary staff yeah. on some pop-up programming around poetry. And I realized that they would be a great partner for this Poet Laureate program signature project that I had to come up with. Um, you know, and that was part of my, part of my um, task as Poet Laureate was to put on a big, some kind of citywide project, but you never got a budget for it, you didn't get any <laughs> money for it. Um, there was really not a lot of support for it. And it just, you know, the stars aligned that Harry appeared with this proposal and mm -hmm. said, hey, if you have an idea, we've got this 30th Street venue and maybe we could do something at 30th Street. We ended up doing a, a pop-up festival of poetry in 30th Street and it was great, it was wonderful and it was great, it representative of some of, a little bit, just of this really vibrant poetry scene in Philly. Um, and he's, he invited me to do more and said, hey, what if we applied for a grant to fund some of this work that you could do with Philadelphia Contemporary and really make a space for poetry and spoken word? Um, because as much as he loved poetry, I think he also just was hard to not recognize how much poetry is a big part of this scene and this, um, the contemporary art scene, but also a part yeah. that doesn't get as much love as some of the other parts. Yeah. Um, like I always like to say, you know, I, I don't like to say it, but I always say that poetry is kind of like the stepchild of some of the, the art scene here. Um, and, you know, we don't always get the kind of space and resources and funding um, as some other forms, we have to kind of squeeze ourselves or assimilate into some other ways of talking about what we do in order to command some of that. Um, so it was great that he had a vision for that that included poetry from the start. And, um, and then we just wrote a grant and I was invited, you know, which is a really great point in my career to be invited to essentially dream up your own job. Yeah. Um, and also think about what you want to call yourself. Um, and we tossed around a lot of names, like Curator of the Word, which sounded a little too <laughs> biblical. Um, like Curator of Spoken Word um, challenged even me because, you know, I wanted to be Curator of Poetry. I'm very much like a purist when it comes to like what I like to call myself. And I always started out as a poet. And it always starts with the words on the page for me. The orality of it is kind of important too. Yeah. It's like a close second. But it never would take over the written word for me. It's got to be both. But I also thought spoken word gave it a really broad platform around storytelling, which I mm. thought was also important. Um, and other kinds of forms of the spoken word that we don't really think about, you know, radio and, oh, um, interesting. you know, debate, oratory. You know, huh. there's like all of these different histories around spoken word from different cultures that I think are interesting to explore. And it opened up a whole field of 
you know, things that I could still learn, like about poetry that I, you know, I know a lot about poetry and spoken word, but there's still a lot for me to learn within this, this, this job. Yeah. Um, all of that being said, it's really cool to have the space to do it, but the museum world is really not my world. Right. Um, a lot of what I've done as a community organizer and as a poet who works really closely with like schools and neighborhoods is like really like anti-museum. It's yeah. anti a lot of the structures that museums operate with. And um, I find that I'm still, I, I still am outside of that. And part of my, my work going forward, I think, is just to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in mm. those spaces, to not get too comfortable. Right. So that I get, you know, it gets easy to go along with the flow and go along with the way that we're going, that the museums have already been built. Um, and I think I work with some people who are really interested to hear these counterpoints of view. They're interested in being checked and their blind spots being challenged. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I still can't get comfortable in the elitist realm of museum, <laughs> museum folk. And there's still just a lot of stuff that I just don't know about it because it's not where my education lies or my cultural experience lies. I do know though that, you know, people in Philly, people of color, black people deserve spaces like museums where their art is put on a pedestal and yeah. um, held in reverence. Um, you know, I, I had an opportunity to go to Abu Dhabi and oh, see wow. the Louvre um, as part of this job, <laughs> which is a great perk, right? So in, uh, this was April of 2018, wow. I was in Dubai. And just to see, you know, there's works in that, that space that, you know, people from Philly will never see. You know, like young people will never have an opportunity to, to be in the same room with some of those works. Right. And those works are part of our history and our lineage. Right. Um, some of those works are stolen property. Um, some of those works, you know, are missing. You know, people are still yearning to have them return to their true place. Right. Um, I think all of these issues are really important to, to not like, you know, slip under the rug, but to make, to put at the forefront of building any museum. Yeah. Um, so I just want to stay woke in that regard when it comes to, you know, who, who museums were for and what they were originally about wasn't necessarily about the people that I'm trying to work with. Absolutely not. <laughs> so it is a little bit of a revolution and a renegade operation, yeah. I think, in terms of my job. And I'd love to be able to have one foot in and one foot out of this space and you know really shift the way people talk about it and talk about how how we as people of color relate to it yeah i mean and i think you're not alone it's really i think there's a reckoning that museums are having sort of internally and also um externally there's been so much with um whether it's you know the british museum finally sort of having to consider returning some of their objects right. to, you know, parts of West right. Africa, whether it's, you know, the Brooklyn Museum having to think mm -hmm. about, you know, what does it mean to have a white curator of African art? Right. And yeah. how what, what does it mean that we don't even think about that, right. you know? Um, so, yeah, I feel like you're right on time <laughs> in a way. And I'm not the only person. You know, there's lots of people who have been yeah. thinking about it. You have to think about it if you're a black person working in these spaces. Um, 
because sometimes you're the only person like you in those spaces yeah. or people may not even regard you as being of value in those spaces. Yeah. So there's still a lot of work of asserting ourselves as we'd like to show up in these spaces rather than having to show up in a certain way yeah. um, that people expect us to, you know, kind of smooth over our edges. Yeah. Um, and then there's also all of these new definitions of what art is, you know, is it this thing in a gilded frame on a wall? Um, and that's why I'm working with Philadelphia Contemporary because I think, you know, we're approaching it from an interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary perspective yeah. that a lot of artists are steeped in right now, you know, that a lot of us are not just trying to play one note, we're trying to have all of these parts of ourself and our practice intersect and we want spaces to be able to like have that flourish. Um, and I think, you know, as we're building a museum, which is like to be able to, to be part of a building process in a city that I love, to be part of something that's gonna last. Yeah. Um, and that it could, you know, it's powerful to think the kind of work that could be um, held in such a space, you know, that reflects, you know, really where art is going. And a lot of that is how black and brown people are thinking about art and innovating on some of these, these structures and creating new structures and forms that deserve to be, you know, in these spaces. Yeah. I mean, speaking of kind of having uh, intersectional creative identities, um, I saw you perform with your band mm -hmm. at the, I think it was at the PMA, like last year, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Um, and I remember you, you were singing and very beautifully and you, said made some comment on the mic about how that you have some family member who teases you that you can't really sing but you're gonna yeah. do it anyway <laughs> um and also i'm i've also been um sort of aware i feel like we have enough sort of overlapping folks um in our lives that I, you there was a period of time when you were having like these rent parties where you would be performing with your band so i've sort of been aware of you as a musician in addition to mm -hmm. being a poet um yeah, and I'm just, I'm curious about that part of your practice. I'm also curious about that provocation of, like, maybe I'm not a singer, but I'm going to sing anyways, right, you know, right. as opposed to your practice as a poet, which is, like, you know, not only are you sort of universally respected as a poet, you also have, like, you know, these really great credentials around poetry, and that's, mm -hmm. like, um, so, yeah, I guess different parts of your artistic identity that are sort of more or less um, formalized or right, something, right. you know? Yeah, and acknowledged, maybe. Exactly. You know, like, I mean, this started when I was young. I mean, I always really wanted to be a singer, and I really wanted to be Tracy Chapman. <laughs> and I even recorded, like, my own little, like, cassette tape with the masking tape over it of, like, it was like a Kenny G tape, but it was really like my Tracy Chapman versions. Um, and I was kind of caught between two musical traditions. So I grew up playing like Suzuki violin and cello. Oh, wow. And um, I couldn't really hear my voice, hmm. you know, my true voice in that work. Um, I loved playing it. It was like the flow of the music, you know, it's just like this is really, you know, you know, you could relish all the twists and turns of playing like a Bach cello suite or something like that. But I felt like there was still some part of my voice that couldn't be expressed either through the instrument or through that type of music. Right. Um, and then, you know, the music I was growing up with, it was like Michael Jackson and Shaka Khan and whatever was on the radio. Yeah. And, 
in Philly, you know, Philly area in 1980s. Um, And if you couldn't sing like Patti LaBelle or Whitney Houston, you weren't like a real singer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I was kind of caught between these two like musical ideals. And I didn't know that there was a lot of stuff in between. Until I got to Philly and was kind of part of a jazz culture here Mm. and got kind of wind of what it meant to play jazz in Philly or to sing jazz. And, you know, it's still a very formidable tradition to want to step out and do a jazz, you know, do a jam session anywhere at a jazz club in Philadelphia. Like, you got to know what you're really getting into. Um, But I also really believe, like, sometimes, you know, you just have to do things. Like, it it comes for you. It doesn't necessarily wait for you to learn all you need to learn. And for me, it was just an identity, a skin that I needed to wear to be able to sing was really important to my sense of healing as like a voice to be able to really maybe it was about it could be just as simple as opening your throat chakra mm-hmm. right but I think it's it's a really deep thing to be able to turn your words into song mm-hmm. um, it's almost like shamanistic or you know you know as part of um, the power that the incantation you know the power of incantation um, it has an effect on the listener, but also on the singer. Yeah, you know the person absolutely. who's delivering that, and it's about moving breath through your body. It's about the electricity, the connection between you and the listener. Um, it's about the improvisational moment. It's about just riding the wave when it, whenever it comes. You know, it's it's about trying to connect with something very deep and 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 soulful. Um, that I think is a big part of like the black musical tradition it's a part of the black literary tradition and for me the literary and music traditions that i come out have always kind of crisscrossed yeah. over and over each other they've always been influenced by one another absolutely you know like when you look at somebody like amiri baraka or sonia sanchez it's hard to know you know which comes first right. the music or the poetry with right. either of them and he's like uh, you know, an incredible scholar also of right. music. Like, blues oh, people yeah. is an incredible, you had, like, when you, Right, when you compare yourself to these folks, when these are your idols, you know, or somebody like Ntozake Shange, I just yeah. look at her body of work, too, which is very much engaged with music. Yeah. Um, you know, but she writes in Spanish, she's written plays, she's written novels, she's written essays, and I'm like, man, I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> you know, like, there's a lot of work in terms of these blueprints and these models that are laid out. Yeah. And there's also, like, you have to look at them and say, how can I be different? What can I add to that tradition that, you know, no one else could but me coming out of my experience where I, growing up where I came from, the experiences only I could have. I'm just trying to find that part of my voice that is distinctly Yolanda's. And, you know, I'm learning something about it, like, every year. You know, every yeah. year is a new twist and turn of, you know, or a new spot that I, I didn't know existed or a new realm in my voice that I didn't know existed. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to play all those parts of myself um, and see how they show up. Just like in the studio, like hanging out with a bunch of visual artists, I'm like, maybe I'll try some watercolors. Who knows? Yeah. You know, thinking about it, it's all a way of living and the lifestyle of being an artist, a way you look at the world as opposed to these little boxes that we try to categorize them in yeah well on the subject of having um a unique voice but also having that voice sort of be um in service to others Mm -hmm. or sort of reflecting the the hopes i guess of others 
Um, you've been a poet laureate not once but twice. Yeah. I didn't realize when I was researching you that you were actually the very first poet laureate of Montgomery County in 1999, yes. which is like so long ago. Yeah, 20 years ago. <laughs> like a whole other person like, ago. How yes. is that 20 years ago? First yes. of all. Um, and then, of course, I was familiar with you having been the Poet Laureate of Philly in 2016. Um, and I'm just, I've never spoken to a Poet Laureate before. <laughs> um, well, and we so, are. yeah, I'm, I'm curious about sort of what that position means to you um, and also sort of how it felt. I mean, maybe on the one hand for, Mo- for Montco, like, mm-hmm. that you were the first, right. you know, like, how did you understand that? How did you feel about that? Also, being so young, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and then also, how did it feel to step into that role in Philly? Wow, I was 23 when I became the Poet Laureate of Montgomery County. And, you know, I didn't have a great relationship to that place. Right. You know, it was a place where I went to school and it was a place where I would just say it was a very predominantly white place and I was often the only person of color or we the only black family on our block. Um, and so there were a lot of interactions, like some of my very first experiences with racism were in Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, there was a point in my life as a teenager where I couldn't wait to leave Montgomery County and go to like a big city. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of my history and my family's history in Montgomery County and how deep it ran. You know, if I knew what I know now, just having done a lot of genealogy, I would have felt a lot different about becoming the poet laureate there. Hmm. I would have had even more pride. But I did have this very distinct pride in representing my family in Hmm. Montgomery County, how proud my great aunts and my uncles were, some of these folks who grew up and lived in, in Ambler and who had kind of had us, like rooted us in in these places, were so proud that a black woman that they knew was the poet laureate. Um, And I felt like every time I went and did a reading there, I was representing my family. um, And representing working class black people in this this space who often don't get seen or don't necessarily feel a sense of ownership in that place. Um, It was a wild ride. I always felt like, you know, you get a little bit of that imposter syndrome where you're like, what am I doing here? Do I belong here? I felt like haunted by the ghost of white male poets who felt like, (laughs) what is she doing here? Like, what are you doing among the the legions of poet laureates? Um, But I found a way to grow into it and step into it. Um, And I learned a lot about myself in terms of, you know, what it meant to be a representative um, through my poetry. It was a powerful learning. Um, So when the the opportunity for Philly came along, I had worked with Sonia Sanchez, who was a teacher of mine, um, and I I was working on a project with her when she was the first poet laureate of Philadelphia. So I literally had like the map of how to go about being a civically engaged poet just from interacting with her and so many other poets that I know who are activists and community organizers. Um, so it was, you know, I, I remember applying the first year, it wasn't my year, but the second year I just knew, I was like, this is my year. Like, this position is made for me. Like, mm. this is kind of what I do anyway. Like, right. if I wasn't anointed with this title, I'd be doing this. I had already kind of figured that out for myself. Um, but it was really awesome to have the platform, and it was amazing to then 
rep all of these dope poets in Philly who I love and respect and admire, some who are older than me, some who are my peers and contemporaries, some who are much younger than me. It was great to be a face for Philly poetry and to give poets, you know, who are emerging and just coming up an opportunity to see themselves like, oh, maybe I could be the poet laureate of Philadelphia because she is, you know, and maybe we come from a similar place of how we do this art. And, you know, maybe that's a path that I can follow. Um, And I just got to go to a lot of different places and inspire people with something I love. Um, and realize that there are a lot of people in the city that love poetry, respect it, um, want to be a part of this community. And I also got to take it beyond Philly and, you know, let other people know um, or confirm what they already knew that, you know, this is a really amazing scene that's unlike any other place. And it should be resourced. It should be funded. It should Mm. be nurtured. Yeah. It should be highlighted. I don't want them to tell too much. I don't want to tell everybody about it because I want them. To, I still <laughs> want them to be it. like keep yeah. it to ourselves and yeah. it not just become like a, a spectacle right. or some kind of tourist thing. But um, there's a real vibe here that's been here as long as I've been here, and you know it was a chance for me to kind of you know do justice to what was given to me in all of these years of you know being a poet in Philly. It was a lot about a community of people who just kind of helped you keep doing it, yeah. who wouldn't let you give it up, even when you kept getting knocked down or rejected. Um, and there are a lot of people who just want to see each other succeed. Yeah. You know, They want to see you get better at your craft, and they want to see you grow. And hopefully people grow and don't feel like they have to leave Philly all the time to get the love that they deserve, that, yeah. you know. It felt like, you know, you could get some of your flowers while you were still here. You know, that's what Poet Laureate felt like, getting a lot of flowers. Um, But also, you know, I got a chance to give some people their flowers, too. Great. Um, So, you know, on the, I guess on the topic of back to uh, PC and the work Mm -hmm. you're doing there, or not even just PC, um, I'm, I'm just really curious about what you've got what irons you have in the fire i'm sure there are many probably some of them are secret um but (laughs) of the things you have going on i I would just love to know more about sort of what you can share and what you're most excited about well one of the things i can share that i'm working on is a podcast so we hope to have several podcasts at philadelphia contemporary but I get to start the first one as the curator of spoken words. So it's going to be a spoken word and music podcast. Oh, great. Um, very Philly-centric. So it'll feature three Philly poets um, reciting a poem, um, which we'll record. And then a DJ stitches those recordings together with some music according to their tastes. Um, and it's the kind of thing I hope people would listen to just, you know, they put on for their morning commute or afternoon yeah. commute as they're, like, enjoying, like, seeing all the cityscape. You know, they'd be also listening to the voices of some of our our poets and, you know, having a little groove to propel you through space and get you to the next destination. Um, It's kind of like an anti-podcast podcast, not a lot of talking, but just poetry. Um, And, you know, I hope it'll, you know, be something that, you know, folks who live here would appreciate and love seeing people that they know or getting acquainted with these new voices. But I hope it also is something that can be shared beyond Philly and people get a taste of that. Yeah. So we're going to announce it on uh, Valentine's Day, February oh. 14th. 
because um, it kind of has a love theme yeah. in the title. Um, but yeah, folks should look for it um, to launch really soon. And, Great. And April will launch like the first three episodes of it. Wow. For National Poetry Month. That's so exciting. And then some of the stuff that's a little kind of under wraps, not so much secret as it's still developing, yeah. um, is, you know, over the next two years, I have three years in this grant. Um, my position is really f is funded um, by the Barra Foundation and for three years. Um, and part of it is working on this podcast as a way to engage folks who don't normally listen to podcasts and kind of break through some of that digital divide yeah. with poetry, which I think sometimes is a bridge builder um, in a way that other arts might, you know, bring up some barriers. Um, is to think about, you know, what falls under this heading of spoken word in mm. my title, um, especially as it relates to storytelling. Right. And we now, you know, we're building this museum in West Philly in the Mantua neighborhood. Um, and um, as we develop a, a process of, you know, working with the community to get their thoughts on what we're doing, um, I, I would love to be able to use my position to preserve the stories of this neighborhood and put them front and center when the museum opens. Hmm. So a lot of the projects that I'm thinking of are working towards that, you know, yeah. thinking about, you know, story circle events, um, ways that we, different ways, creative ways that we can collect story, um, using poetry as the vehicle, um, working with other organizations and literary organizations in the city who do really great work, yeah. um, to really just get to know the, the neighborhood that we're in and make sure that the we're weaving the neighborhood's voice into what we're doing in the museum. Um, so yeah, that's that's a lot of that. Hopefully, putting the neighborhoods, the neighborhoods' art and the artists who are already there, um, in the spotlight, you know, and inviting them to help us build this museum together. Yeah, you know, um, that's what I'm most interested in. Well, great. Um, thank you. You're so welcome. much for your time. Thank this you. has been such a pleasure. Um, yeah, I'm sort of in the process of transitioning out of my role with our blog, my official role mm. with our blog. Um, so this is going to be one of my final yeah. podcasts, and I'm so excited that you get to be one of my last ones. Honored. Because I'm such a fan. Um, so, again, I'm Imani Roach, and this has been another episode of Our Blog Radio. We've been speaking with the great Yolanda Wisher. Thank you, Imani. Um, so until next time, goodbye.